0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org. The other day, someone in our neighborhood uh, asked in a bit of a panic what this loud siren was that they were hearing uh, outside that morning. Was he supposed to do something? Was this some kind of an emergency? And he didn't know that on the first Tuesday of every month at 10 a.m., our town tests the emergency warning siren. And though he had lived in the neighborhood for years, he had never heard that siren before because uh, at that time of the month, he was always at work. Uh, But because of this stay-at-home order, he heard it for the first time. And I think this is just one among many stories that illustrate all the ways that our normal rhythms have been totally disrupted because of this pandemic. We've been monitoring the situation very closely every week as a church staff uh, to see basically what the latest developments are and to try to figure out how it is going to impact ICC. Even though healthcare experts say that most regions in the U.S. really aren't equipped at this time for the necessary wide-scale testing or the contact tracing uh, that is needed, a number of states have already started to move to relaxing some of the social distancing measures that have been in place for the last six or seven weeks. The most current projections uh, by the epidemiologists are indicating that this coronavirus will be a reality that all of us are going to have to live with for many more months to come. And the real turning point in fighting this virus isn't likely to come until we've actually reached uh, what's known as herd immunity, uh, either by uh, enough people being infected by the virus or through the availability of a vaccine. And that vaccine, experts tell us, won't be available till next summer at the earliest. It's hard to predict what all of this is going to mean for us as a church. But it's likely that we will be able to resume smaller-scale meetings like community groups or leaders' meetings before we can even think about starting up Sunday worships again. And uh, even once we do resume in-person Sunday worships, Uh, At first, anyway, it's very likely that we're going to have to do so on a much more scaled-down basis in order to still maintain the social distancing guidelines. One of the scenarios that very well may be possible is that we may need to set up some kind of a rotation where a number of families can come worship in person here in the sanctuary each week uh, while we live stream the service for the rest of you who are worshiping at home. Uh, But at the end of the day, we just really don't know what's going to happen in the weeks and the months that are to come. And so let's all be praying together as we seek God's wisdom and how to best respond uh, week to week, month to month to this crisis. In fact, why don't we pray together right now? Father, as we uh, celebrate this Mother's Day um, under these circumstances, we um, realize that we don't get to do the normal traditions of maybe going out to a restaurant and enjoying a good meal together like that. And yet, nevertheless, even on, uh, in the midst of this crisis, we want to celebrate the great gift that you've given to us for the mothers in our life. We thank you for the way that they so tirelessly serve the family and the way that they pour out their lives uh, in so many different ways, both seen and unseen, uh, to care for us. And so we pray, especially on this day, that you would... Uh, Bless them and strengthen them and enable them to continue to faithfully do the work that they're doing on our behalf. May you pour into them so that they can pour into others. We pray for this worship this day, though we are all separated physically in our own homes. Unite us together in one spirit around the teaching of your word and worship to you. And So as we do that, open our hearts to understanding what you want to say to us this morning. As we pray this all in Christ's name, amen. So a few weeks ago, as you know, I began a, this brief mini-series inviting uh, all of you into these moments of solitude and silence and wanting to use this stay-at-home order as basically an invitation by God to spend time with Him, listening for His voice. And that first week, I asked you to reflect on Jesus' invitation to live for the things that really matter, the, the, what we call the deeper life. Uh, and I also asked you to think about the way that life in the suburbs uh, seems to often pull us in the exact opposite direction of that deeper life that Christ wants for us. In his book, Death by Suburb, Dave Getz illustrates the way that the values of life in the suburbs can creep into our hearts. And he writes, the last time my wife Jana and I purchased a home, we decided beforehand how much we could spend. Then, in the process of securing a loan, we learned that technically we could afford uh, much more than what we had agreed upon. The bigger is better argument made good sense. Your income will rise, so your payments will eventually be easier to make. Plus, property is a good investment. There's a, little, there's a limited supply of land. It will always go up. When the real estate agent drove us around to look at homes, I read between the lines, you don't want to buy in this neighborhood, meaning you can afford more. Move up, move up, uh, up a level. A volcano of insecurity began to erupt. We'll never get a house we really like. I need to make more money. It hurts when you can't buy the house you think you need. Why do I feel as if I'll never have enough? Why am I oblivious to much of what I have, except that which is just out of reach? I hesitate to call this chronic emotional state evil because doing so feels like vitiating the horrible atrocities that play out on the world stage each day. But could it be? Could this obsession with the good life just out of my grasp, be a covert manifestation of evil in my life? Who will ask me the real questions? Will buying this house honor God? Will it give me a sense of peace? Or will it add to your stress? This is the subtle poison that can enter into our spiritual bloodstream. Living for the same things and chasing after the same dreams that the world lives for and chases after. We're all so anxious to go back to our normal lives, but during this crisis, you should be asking yourself, what should normal look like for me once this crisis is over? What are the changes that you need to make in order to enter into the deeper life that Jesus invites you to? Last week, I talked about how from a young age, all of us develop the skill of creating a false self, a version of ourselves that is better than we actually are. We learn how to do and say the right things that will win others' approval, even if it doesn't truly represent who we are on the inside. Initially, we create this false self to deceive others, but in the end, we end up believing our own lie. And that makes it incredibly hard to see ourselves as we truly are. As long as we hide behind our false self, we feel only a little guilty for our sins. Our false self, in fact, stands up pretty well against any accusations that are made against us, even if those accusations come from God himself. That's why true repentance requires us to see our false self, so that like the Apostle Paul, we can honestly confess the depth of our sin struggle. In Romans chapter 7 verse 19 and verse 24. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? It is only when we can deal honestly with our sin that we can move to the real growth and transformation into Christ-likeness that God desires for us. Well, as we come into another week, I want to continue to encourage you to seek these moments of solitude and silence during this COVID-19 crisis. But this week, I want to invite you to reflect on the ways that your faith is expressed in loving and serving others. Matthew 16, 24 to 25, we read this verse last week. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Last week I pointed out how uh, the call to a crucified life is a call to die to self. And that means putting, on, putting to death the sinful patterns that wage war within our hearts. But another aspect of dying to ourselves is also a call to surrender our rights for the service and the benefit of others in our life. And Jesus himself powerfully demonstrated this aspect of the crucified life when he washed the disciples' feet. In John chapter 13, verse 12 to, 12 to 15, it says, When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your te- Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Jesus makes it very clear that what he had done for his disciples was to stand for them as an example, that they should also do the same thing for one another. But you know, it's scary how self-absorbed and how self-centered we can become as Christians. Claiming all of the promises of God for ourselves and praying for His favor in our lives and yet missing this fundamental character of the Christian life to live not for our sakes but for the sake of others. You know, this morning I want to look at this parable of the Good Samaritan to help us Understand the kind of attitude that God desires of us. As well as to expose the type of attitudes that are more instinctive in us when it comes to loving and serving others. And in order to understand this parable, we have to realize what the context of it is. In Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 26, it says, "...on one occasion an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus." Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? The telling of the story was prompted by an expert of the law who asked Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. Often the Jewish leaders seemed to be approaching Jesus with sincere questions of faith, but they almost always had darker motives underneath. And so as he often did, Jesus replied to this question with a question of his own. Why don't you tell me what the answer is? And so the expert of the law answered in verses 27 to 28. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live it was a good answer it was the right answer and Jesus acknowledged that but then his real motive is revealed in his next question in verse 29 but he wanted to justify himself so he asked Jesus and who is my neighbor in other words he asked Jesus to define for him what neighbor is as a way to try to justify the way that he was already living out this command in his life. And so in response to that, Jesus tells him this story. In verse 30 to 37, it says, In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. In this parable, there's this man that is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho A route that was notorious for its danger. He is attacked by robbers. He is stripped and beaten and left for dead on the roadside. And eventually a priest passes by and veers to the opposite side of the road in order to avoid getting involved with the scene. And then a Levite passes by and does the exact same thing, walking on the opposite side of the road to avoid the scene of the crime. And the teacher of the law would have immediately understood the moral dilemma that these men were facing because both the priest and the Levite were servants of the temple. And they would have been in trouble if they came in contact with a dead person. It would have made them ceremonially unclean. And so here is this body laying on the roadside, dead, unconscious, who knows. But how could they tell without coming into contact with a body? In fact, even coming within four feet of a dead body would have made them unclean. And if it turned out that he in fact was dead, then they had just made themselves unclean for no reason disqualifying themselves from serving at the temple. And so faced with this dilemma, both men make this cold-hearted calculation not to get involved. And regardless of this issue of ceremonial purity, it's hard to stomach the behavior of these two men, isn't it? How could they act so heartlessly to someone in such dire need? And the teacher of the law to whom Jesus told This parable would have felt the exact same way. It's interesting that Jesus chose a Levite and a priest to be the villains of his story. You know, we tend to lump all religious leaders of that time into one big group as if they were all in bed together. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law didn't really get along with the priests and the others who served at the temple in Jerusalem. They saw them, in fact, as a power-hungry upper class who were politically motivated and actually spiritually bankrupt. But now Jesus turns the tables on this teacher of the law. The third person who arrives on the scene that day is not a Pharisee as that expert in the law would have expected, but a Samaritan. And in light of the audience that Jesus was speaking to, he couldn't have chosen a more offensive hero for his story because the Jews hated the Samaritans. They were a mixed race that was the product of years ago when Jews intermarried with Gentiles. This hatred for them was so great that there are records of Jewish prayers during that time, petitioning God not to grant salvation to any Samaritans. I mean, how much do you have to hate a group of people to actually pray against their salvation? Remember what triggered Jesus to tell this parable. An expert of the law wanted to justify himself. And the way that he tried to do this is by asking Jesus, define this term neighbor for me. In other words, really, he wanted to justify his lack of loving his neighbor by this loophole of narrowly defining who a neighbor was. After all, if somebody is not my neighbor, then I don't have to love them. And so whether it was in the name of religion, this whole thing about ceremonial cleanliness, or frankly, whether it was the result of outright racism, they excluded anyone that they didn't want to love from this definition of, quote, being a neighbor. This is religion at its worst. It is interpreting God's commands to suit our own Preferences and in doing so, basically reshaping God in our own image. And so Jesus uses the story of the Good Samaritan to reveal how far this man is from the heart of God. And the truth is all of us are guilty of this sin. All of us pick and choose who we want to love. How we narrowly define who our neighbor is. And sadly, I think the truth is, most of us don't feel all that guilty about this either. You know, there was this experiment done with Princeton Seminary students who were asked to prepare a talk on this parable of the Good Samaritan. And after reporting to a particular building, they were sent to a different location on campus where they were supposed to present that talk to a group of people. And on this route, the researchers stationed a person in an alleyway that they knew these students would have to walk through. And this person was told to roll around on the ground groaning in pain, making it absolutely clear that he was in dire need of help. And they wanted to see how many seminarians would actually stop to help him out. And the sad thing was that the majority of these students stepped around and some even stepped over this man so that they wouldn't be hindered from presenting their paper on the Good Samaritan. The irony of that is staggering, isn't it? And I think all of us imagine that if we were subjects in that experiment, that we would have been in that minority who would have stopped and helped this guy out. But are you so sure? Because I think the truth is all of us are capable of this kind of callous, calculated, cold-heartedness toward those in need all of us have this incredible capacity to compartmentalize our lives so that we don't actually feel all that guilty about our indifference toward the suffering of others. After all, who is my neighbor? You know, during my years living as a missionary in Kenya, my heart was just constantly weighed down by the endless need we encountered there. I, I can't think of almost a single day that went by without somebody coming to my office at the hospital and asking me for some kind of assistance or another. And even at our home, people from the village who knew that we were missionaries would regularly knock on our door and ask for help at all hours of the day. A woman who didn't have enough money to purchase Uh, for uh, a surgical procedure that she needed. A father who needed money to pay for his son's school fees. A pastor who asked for my help to rescue a teenage girl who had run away from home because her family was going to forcibly circumcise her. And how can you say no to requests like that? And so as much as possible, We tried to help everyone that we could during our years there. But here's the thing. Once we moved back to America, I was struck by how sheltered our life suddenly became out here in the suburbs. Surrounded by beautifully kept subdivisions, top-rated school districts, shopping malls, coffee shops, gyms and movie theaters. I realized how insulated we are from so much of the need and pain that fills our world. In other words, if you choose not to, you almost never have to be confronted by things like poverty or gang activity or human trafficking and prostitution. Listen, I don't want to make light of the struggles that you may be going through. But I think all of us need to acknowledge that suburban living is intentionally designed to keep so much of the systemic brokenness of our world outside of its walls. The truth is this though, we cannot help everyone who is in need. I mean we realized that sobering fact as missionaries in Africa. But the truth That truth is everywhere, no matter where we live. The need is endless, and it can be overwhelming to try to take on the burdens of others around us. But through this parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus tells this teacher of the law, You're asking the wrong question. Rather than asking, Who is my neighbor? You ought to be asking, how do I become the kind of person who can truly love my neighbor like the Samaritan? In other words, how do I become the kind of good neighbor that will love others selflessly? My fear is this. My fear is that because we can't help everyone, we end up helping no one. And the reality is that it gets messy when you try to help somebody in need. Unlike the clean, convenient boundary lines that this teacher of the law drew around his love for others by the way that he defined who a neighbor was, things got really messy and complicated for the Samaritans once he decided to get involved. After bandaging this man's wounds, he realized that he couldn't just leave this guy on the roadside. And so he puts him on his own donkey, which means he has to walk because there's only one seat on this ride. And he brings him to an inn where he could be looked after. And after paying the innkeeper to look after him while he attends to his own business, he is committed now And so after his affairs are done, he will come back, he says, and settle any other further costs that are incurred in the care for this man and make sure that he's going to be okay. I mean, where does it end, right? Where does it end? And I think it's precisely this messiness that causes so many of us to choose not to get involved with other people's problems. And I think the truth is this. The only way that we can follow the example of this Good Samaritan is if God does a work in our hearts. We can't just grit our teeth and force ourselves to do this. When we look at the story of the Good Samaritan, we see that he did not do this out of duty or obligation, but unlike the Levite and the priest, what... The story tells us is that when the Samaritan looked at this man lying for half dead on the roadside, he was filled with compassion. In other words, his heart was moved to act and to love this person that he didn't even know. God must first do a work in our hearts if we're going to be able to love others like this. And I think we can only love others like that, when we realize that this is how God loves us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 says, we love because he first loved us. Until we realize that we ourselves are that man that was on that roadside lying dead. And that Christ himself was our good Samaritan who cared for us and bandaged our wounds and brought us to full healing. Until we realize that we were first the ones who received that mercy, we don't have the strength nor the desire to offer that same mercy and love to others. I think one of the great dangers as we go through this COVID-19 pandemic is that it can really put into overdrive our self-preservation instincts. I mean, that's been clearly on display in our stores, hasn't it? I mean, I was just blown away when I went to the store to buy some food and just saw entire aisles in my grocery store completely cleared as everyone just grabbed for everything they could, thinking, well, I'm going to get it before it runs out and other people take it. But a lot has been written about the way that Christians have responded historically historically to past pandemics that killed far more people than this current pandemic is projected to do. A Lyman Stone writes about that as he reflects on the Christian response to previous pandemics. And he says, this habit of sacrificial care has reappeared throughout history. In 1527, when the bubonic plague hit Wittenberg, Martin Luther refused calls to flee the city and protect himself. Rather, he stayed and ministered to the sick. The refusal to flee cost his daughter Elizabeth her life. But it produced a tract entitled, Whether Christians Should Flee the Plague, where Luther provides a clear articulation of the Christian epidemic response. We die at our posts. Christian doctors cannot abandon their hospitals. Christian governors cannot flee their districts. Christian pastors cannot abandon their congregations. The plague does not dissolve our duties. It turns them to crosses on which we must be prepared to die. These are heavy words, aren't they? But I think they are valid words for us in this crisis. Like First responders, when others are running away from danger and doing everything that they can to protect themselves and their loved ones. As Christians, we ought to be thinking about how we can love our neighbor. And that doesn't mean just those who are related to us by blood or the people that we care about, but it also ought to mean everyone around us that we can do good to. How can we, maybe even at times, run in the direction of danger? to show love to our neighbor. You know, one of the ways that we can respond is by giving to a special benevolence fund that the elders have created for this COVID-19 crisis. Uh, And so right now, Pastor Peter is going to share with you a bit about what this fund is all about. You know, I've been so encouraged by a number of you who have reached out to me uh, during this COVID 19 crisis, asking about how you might be able to financially assist families here at ICC who may be economically struggling. And uh, that just really warmed my heart to see that love that you initiated uh, without even being prompted to do so. And I think many, I hope that many of you will consider giving to this fund. And if you are one of those families in need right now and you're going through economic hardship, Uh, I pray that you would reach out to us and to seek the help that's available through this fund. There are other ways that you can apply this sermon during these weeks of crisis. Maybe one of the things that you can do is just simply check in on your neighbors. Uh, One of my pastor friends has been sharing how uh, he's lived in this neighborhood for decades, but he really hadn't gotten to know some of the neighbors on his street. But during this pandemic, he's just been taking prayer walks all through his neighborhood and just waving and saying hi to his neighbors. And that has actually sparked some really uh, meaningful conversations with them and even with one neighbor that has asked for his prayers. Another thing that you might be able to do to uh, show love to your neighbor during this crisis is to give blood to uh, the Red Cross and to other agencies uh, the blood banks are reporting unprecedented shortages in their blood supply, and they've created protocols where you can give in a very safe environment. All you have to do is go to redcrossblood.org and just type in your zip code, and it will give you a list of all of the blood drives that are ongoing in a near driving distance from you. I know that even some in our church have been sewing masks. And giving them away. And I think that's another wonderful way to serve uh, others in this time of crisis. And as I shared at the beginning of the message, maybe one of the things you could do is encourage the healthcare workers who continue to fight on the front lines of this uh, crisis, helping those who are in need. I, I think there are just so many different ways that we can show love to our neighbor during this crisis. And so as you spend some more time in solitude and silence, Maybe in this week you could really spend some time reflecting on the ways in which maybe your faith has become very self-focused, self-serving even. And Maybe you will hear the Spirit of God challenging you to be more selfless, to find ways in which you can love your neighbor during this crisis, even at personal risk and cost to yourself what would it be for me what would it mean for me to carry my cross to live the crucified life and love others as christ loves me let's pray lord i pray that through the work of your spirit you would challenge all of us during this time of crisis to grow beyond our self-centered pursuit after our own safety And to make sure that we and our loved ones are looked after above every other priority. And I pray that we as your people who are called by your name would rise up during this crisis. And maybe even at times run into the direction of danger and harm when everyone else is running in the other direction. Sharing limited resources with those who are in need. Even though that may put at risk our own stock of those same resources and giving freely and selflessly of our time, our energy, even our finances in order to help those who are in greater need than we are. And so, Lord, do that work in our heart and cause your love, your compassion, your mercy to rise up in our own hearts, that in the midst of this we could stand as your witnesses and bear the example of your love to those around us. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now receive the benediction. May you have the power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ for you. And in the knowledge of that love, may God give you compassion for others so that you can see them through his eyes and love them selflessly and sacrificially. Amen.